Welcome. This is the first of the uh, anatomy of the thorax, and so we'll call it AT1. Um, I thought for these that we would make them a little bit briefer um, so that we can get a few more uh, podcasts in over the thorax. Uh, this one is really just an introduction to thoracic anatomy in general terms. And I think from there we'll then move into the thoracic wall and the approaches in thoracotomy. Um, we traditionally divide the anatomical study of the thorax into consideration of the anatomy of the thoracic cage and its neuromusculature, the basic divisional structure of the mediastinum and the diaphragm, the lungs and the bronchopulmonary segments, and then the heart and great vessels. So that's the approach that I'm going to take over these next few podcasts. Our attention typically compartmentalises the thorax so that we include an appreciation of the basic structural units, if you will, of the intercostal um, nerves, later I suppose the archetypal thoracoabdominal nerves, as well as component structures in the posterior mediastinum. So similarly, with the head and neck and the upper and lower limbs, all of which we've so far covered, um, there needs to be an appreciation of unitary structure. But within this framework, we should be cognizant also of some relevant embryology, mostly of the heart and great vessels and diaphragm, and also of the autonomic nervous system, as well as why the mediastinum has been technically divided in the manner in which it is. These things are not accidental, and indeed even incidental, they have clinical and surgical significance, and I'll attempt to point these out as we go. There is, as I believe, little advantage in our students remembering things if they neither understand their meaning or their significance. And yet again, in this part of the course, you should always be asking yourself what I've just seen, heard, or dissected actually means. Do I get it in the whole picture? And that may indeed take going back... Uh, to uh, earlier podcasts and solidifying them in your mind so that whole, the whole picture starts to sort of crack into place. And the second question you should always ask yourself is why should I care? What's the significance of what I've just learned? In short, why does it matter? And if these anatomical points can be put into a clinically useful context, then you'll remember them. Just by way of that, I'm studying Italian at the moment and the grammar is simply not sticking by itself. It only cements with examples and the principles here, I think, between anatomy and learning another language are almost identical. I find myself going over old audio tapes that explain these grammatical rules and creating new examples for me. Indeed, even the staid almost ossified anatomy will take on a new meaning if you see it in the latest case you've just done 
or you see some important or significant anatomical variation that not only was interesting, but that affected the case. So let's move on. Sorry for me being on my old hobby horse, as I always am, stating the way I like to teach, but if there's a raison d'etre, then there's a reason to get out of bed. So we can make some general remarks about the thorax, but even when we simply do this, it shows us its complexity. The thorax connects the neck to the abdomen. It's the pathway for transmitting structures from the neck via the superior thoracic aperture, guarded by the suprapleural or Sibson's membrane, or to or from the abdomen <coughs> via the inferior thoracic aperture. And I'll return to these areas, these apertures in this series, in a very specific way, because for now we merely need to think of a stab wound to the root of the neck, a so-called zone 1 injury, which extends from the clavicles to the cricoid, or of any traumatic event to the upper abdomen in the inverse thoracic uh, or the inferior thoracic aperture. When we examine any chest X-ray, it's dominated by the lungs and the heart and great vessel shadows, but that area between separated by a median septum comprising the mediastinum uh, is very separate. And if we turn to the chest X-ray around and examine a lateral chest X-ray, we see that the air-filled retrosternal region, the anterior mediastinum, then there's the heart and great vessels, which no clinician but only anatomists refer to as the middle mediastinum, and then the large um, air-filled um, area at the back, the posterior mediastinum. So again, we're presented with something in a particular way, and we should sort of ask why. Why does it matter that you've got an anterior and a posterior mediastinum? Well, firstly, when we see that large area that represents the anterior mediastinum, we can recall that there's actually not much going on there anatomically. It's retrosternal, so that a mass presenting there can be readily and not uncommonly represent a retrosternal goiter. Because embryologically there's no mediastinal connection or origin, these masses can almost always be lifted up and delivered from the root of the neck and it's simply rare to ever need a partial mediastinal split to get at that. And I can only remember actually one such case of a malignant medullary cancer of the thyroid. The, the only other thing there in that space is, of course, the thymus, and we'll discuss its anatomy later on in another podcast. But for now, we need to know the anatomy of the thymus because sometimes it requires removal. And this, we recall, is a feature of thymomas or thymic lymphomas, sometimes as an heroic treatment of multiple or disseminated sclerosis. And so it's important that we try and link our knowledge of the anatomy to its clinical context, yes? If we're continuing on this vein, that posterior mediastinum is also pretty empty. It contains the esophagus, the descending aorta, and the sympathetic trunk and the thoracic duct. But it's also the site of not uncommon paediatric tumours, which are typically of neurilemal origin, the neurilemomas and ganglioneuromas and ganglioneuroblastomas. So masses here in the posterior mediastinum in children are actually not rare. About 90% of posterior mediastinal tumours are neurogenic in origin, most of them neuroblastomas, about 20% of all paediatric neuroblastomas occurring in the chest. So for your interest, the simplest separation and 
based on the lateral chest X-ray is called the Felsen method, although the Japanese Association for Research on the Thymus has proposed a new classification which relies on transverse CT images and dividing the area into four compartments, the superior portion, the anterior or prevascular zone, the middle mediastinum or peritracheoesophageal zone, and the posterior or paravertebral zone. My point here is that when we talk about the mediastinum, we separate it into those compartments. The reason we're doing that is because of this clinical significance and your interest, this old Felsen method that we spoke of, the anterior, middle and posterior mediastinum, has recently been upgraded, as I've said, by the Japanese Association for Research on the Thymus into four discrete zones. The internal or international thymic malignancy group is similar with its prevascular, visceral and paravertebral compartments. But the reason for us mentioning all of these things is because they have some degree of clinical significance, mostly for tumours. My point here is that it's got clinical relevance, not only for tumours, but also for congenital anomalies uh, for their diagnosis. And that is in part why it's so divided. The reason why this last ITMIG or ITMIG group has significance is because it standardises the classification of the mediastinal compartments according to cross-sectional CT anatomy. So again, it's going to change the nature of radiologic reporting of, of this region. If I haven't quite made my point, I'd need to suggest that in infections, that is para- and retropharyngeal infections to be precise, and we did discuss a bit of this in the head and neck um, uh, sections, uh, that these are limited by the ala fascia, if you'll remember, which allows neck sepsis, if left untreated, to spread into the superior mediastinum and then directly into the posterior mediastinum. And we can see how these are connected. You can review this area in the discussion of the anatomy of the pharynx which I posted in August of 2021 as AHN, Anatomy of the Head and Neck 13. And therefore, how in this infective context the divisions of the mediastinum actually have very little relevance since such infection can theoretically descend down to the diaphragmatic level as far as the direction of the extent of the ala fascia. And we can also see, I think, how a paravertebral abscess could only extend as far as the third thoracic vertebra because osteomyelitis of the thoracic spine, which is most commonly, as I've mentioned in other podcasts, thoracic tuberculosis, or as it's called, POTS disease, that's the commonest vertebral site for tuberculosis, that could only extend as a soft tissue abscess from the point of attachment of the prevertebral fascia, which is the bottom of T3. So again, you might like to check that out in the discussion on head and neck fasci, which was posted on November, uh, in November 2020 as AHN1. And my point here is that these fasci and spaces were really so defined because they represented the anatomical findings at post-mortem from conditions that we don't actually see today. And they're then more of historical than clinical relevance. We wouldn't normally mention the prevertebral fascia. We wouldn't normally mention the communication between the superior and posterior mediastina. And so they're a little, in a sense, artificial 
in the way we've described the mediastinum or compartmentalised it because they're not clinically relevant anymore. There's considerable confusion, I think, also about thoracic movements, and we'll get into it in another podcast, but the idea of bucket handle and pump handle mechanics, neither, by the way, of which exist in a living physiological mechanism. But we'll go through it later. Suffice to say, it's devised by anatomists for no real clinical purpose. The chest cavity increases in three dimensions, vertically, up and down, anteroposteriorly to kind of barrel the chest, and by lateral width expansion. And we can see this simply and how it can be modified to disadvantage in some patients with chronic obstructive pulmonary disease. And the mechanical idea is of no real consequence. I'll return to this anyway for purists. Our understanding of the thoracic wall is important, obviously, for surgical access, but the movements are such a design to increase or to decrease intrathoracic volume. The thoracic skeleton is, of course, not only protective, but it's ergonomic in overcoming the effects of atmospheric pressure, comprising the thoracic vertebrae, the ribs, the flexibility of the costal cartilages, the flexibility of the sternum and sternum and the piston-like activity of the diaphragm. All of these I'll consider in more detail in the relevant podcast. It's not only about thoracic aperture and volume, but it's also an ability to enhance or impede cardiac venous return. And this framework, as I've already said, with the first seven or true ribs articulating with the sternum, but with the eighth to tenth false ribs articulating as costochondral or cartilaginous junctions, and then the free-floating 11th and 12th ribs. The movement is differential with the first rib as a costal cartilage fused to the upper manubrium so that this area, which frequently ossifies in later life, functions as a single unit. The angulation of the ribs shows that laterally and posteriorly it overlaps the abdominal viscera, which is of importance, of course, in stab wounds. And the issue is, of course, more complicated because it depends on the status of inspiration, the position of the patient, for example, say, in recumbency. The inferior sternum, or xiphoid, lies steadily at the lowest part of T9. The lowest part of the costal margin is at the 11th rib in the mid-axillary line and is at the level of L3 at about the iliac crest level. And that's obviously of relevance in motor vehicle trauma, where in older people these can be almost at the same level. An 11th T vertebral injury can occur combined in elderly people with a fracture of the iliac crest. In generality, the lateral part of this thoracic cavity is filled with the lungs that lie in their individual pleural cavity. The space that lies in between these lungs and pleural cavities The bit lying in the centre, as we've said, is the mediastinum, containing the heart, great vessels, the esophagus, the trachea and its bifurcation, the thoracic duct, the vagus and the phrenic nerves. When we consider this region in greater detail, we'll subdivide it in the way I've described and I'll explain the importance of the manubriosternal, or so-called Louis angle, and all the activity that's going on there. Now that's of course of great importance for a mass which involves structures at this level or for interpreting, for example, the axial CT images. 
it was a favourite of the anatomists, the angle of Louis and what occurs across that, if you were to cut across that directly. It was a favourite for the anatomists prior to the 1980s when we actually had accurate axial radiology, CTs and later reconstructed CTs and MRIs. Uh, and uh, this was actually not of um, uh, that much value as it is now in the interpretation of those axial or reconstructed images. Now we have to get into the weeds, I think, of the thoracic wall, and I might divide this podcast so that we can have them in smaller applicable bites. I just want to briefly mention the thoracic wall. Uh, I should preface my remarks here. We remember that above the clavicles is the cutaneous cervical plexus supply. The midline ventral skin is innervated by the anterior cutaneous branches of the spinal nerves between T2 and L1 with a very broad lateral or lateral cutaneous nerve supply which emerges in the mid-axillary line and divides anteriorly and posteriorly. So we're discussing aspects of the archetypal intercostal nerve. The ilioinguinal nerve, which is part of L1, is actually a modified intercostal nerve and therefore has no lateral cutaneous branch as such, but is itself the collateral branch of the iliohypogastric nerve. So you should be thinking of L1 as a modified intercostal nerve. We'll be going through this in more specific detail at the relevant points, but we want to make some general remarks. The subcostal nerve, for example, has such an angulation on it that it runs over the back of the hip. The posterior strip of the intercostal nerve is like the anterior strip, and it runs from the posterior primary segmental rami as medial branches in the upper chest to about T6 to clear the scapula, and then as lateral branches in the lower part, so a slight variation there. And in very broad terms, the outer layer of the muscles in the chest is formed by the external intercostals, but also by the posterior serrate muscle in the chest and by the external oblique, its homologue, in the abdomen. The middle layer of muscle is archetypally formed by the internal intercostals and by its abdominal homologue, the internal oblique. And then the inner layer of the muscles are the so-called transversus thoracis group in toto, that is the innermost intercostals, the transverse thoracis muscle itself, and the so-called subcostals, as well as the diaphragm, if we're looking at it embryologically speaking. In the abdomen, the equivalent of the innermost muscle is the transversus abdominis, but also more laterally the quadratus lumborum, and in the pelvis we would include the levator ani, which can be considered homologously with the diaphragm. Now, why is any of that important? Those are the sort of things that we're taught. We'll be going over the intercostal spaces, the external intercostal, the internal intercostals, the innermost intercostals. But who cares? Well, in access or in anaesthesia, we need to approach the intercostal nerves. We need to avoid their vessels in a thoracocentesis tap of pleural fluid or in draining a pneumothorax. Okay, we all know that the intercostal neurovascular bundle lies under the costal groove on a rib. If you take one out, 
have a look at it if you've got one. And you'll see that this means sticking your needle for a drainage above the rib below in that interspace, typically above the rib below. But if you wish to anaesthetise the nerve, of course, you've got to deliberately get near the nerve. And the intercostal neurovascular bundle lies between the inner and the innermost layers of muscles wherever you are. That is, wherever you are. So in the chest, this is between the innermost intercostals and the inner intercostal muscle. In other words, it's between the subcostals and the internal intercostal. That's where the intercostal neurovascular bundle runs. So if you're trying to avoid it in a thoracocentesis or you're trying to get near it in an intercostal block. Uh, so in, in the chest, that is the area of where the intercostal neurovascular, run, uh, uh, neurovascular bundle runs. But in the abdomen, it's the same thing. It runs between the relevant innermost layer and the internal layer. In other words, between the transversus abdominis and the internal obliquus. Well, if you want to rotate your mind by 90 degrees, the equivalent of the external layer in the neck is the scalenus posterior. That's its kind of homological or embryological equivalent, just rotated about 90 degrees so that it's running up and down. And so the external layer, which would be the external intercostal or the external oblique, its homologue in the neck is the scalenus posterior. And then we would come to the equivalent of the internal muscle, the internal intercostal or the internal oblique, and its equivalent is the scalenus medius in the neck. And then the innermost equivalent, which is the innermost muscles in the chest, the subcostals, or in the abdomen, the transversus abdominis, the innermost muscle is then the scalenus anterior. All right? And this explains, therefore, where would the neurovascular bundle go? In the uh, chest, of course, the intercostal neurovascular bundle is between the internal oblique and the innermost. In the abdomen, between the internal oblique uh, and the uh, transversus abdominis. And so in the neck, the internal and the innermost layers has the brachial plexus, which is the neurovascular bundle, running between the scalenus anterior and the scalenus medius. And that's why it is exactly like that. It's merely rotated 90 degrees. We just don't think of it that way because it's sitting upright. But it's the same somite principle of development. And this innermost layer in the neck actually includes the scalenus anterior muscle, the longus capitis, and the longus cervicis, for those who are interested. But the principle is the same. By the way, the innermost intercostals, the so-called subcostals, which I'll leave until the next podcast, are most developed posteriorly and inferiorly. And that's important. That is, these are muscles that are slinging across multiple rib spaces, like a little bit of a flying buttress on the side of a church. So if there's more innermost muscle that is in the place where we put the thoracic tap, the chances of a pneumothorax are less. And the knowledge of that anatomy is therefore used to our clinical advantage, which is what it's all about. 
In other words, we're putting our thoracic tap low down and lateral, where there's actually a greater amount of innermost intercostals. You're much less likely in a thoracocentesis to then induce a, 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 a pneumothorax. Of course, the vertical muscles can be seen in the abdomen, as we know, like those in the neck. But in the abdomen, this is the rectus abdominis. In the neck, these are the infrahyoid muscles, the sternohyoid and the sternothyroid. And as well, uh, vertically, one might include, I think, the geniohyoid. And we've considered that in a much earlier Head and Neck podcast, AHN1 on the triangles, fascia and spaces of the neck, and also um, in AHN3 on the prevertebral and scalene muscles, as well as in AHN12 on the anatomy of the mouth. And you might like to review that um, if you want. What's relevant about this is that about 5% of patients also have a vertical strip of muscle in their chest, and that's like the rectus abdominis, and we call that the rectus sternalis muscle. A few additional points of definition may be noted for us. The importance of the right and left midclavicular lines, the anterior axillary line along the anterior axillary fold, the mid-axillary line, which is halfway between the anterior and posterior axillary lines, the posterior axillary line aforementioned at the posterior axillary fold, the scapular lines passing through the inferior angles of the scapulae at the seventh intercostal space, and the paravertebral line. And I may refer to some of these lines in various podcasts relating various muscles or positions to them. I'm going to leave this podcast, actually there's a short one this time, to introduce the subject, but I'll constantly refer back to this particular structure that I've outlined. Our next podcast in this series will be on the anatomy of the thoracic wall and some basic structure on the intercostal nerves and the approaches in a thoracotomy. Um, I hope this has been a valuable start and I'll see you in the next podcast. Thanks so much for listening.